You're listening to a not-for-print podcast, independent Australian podcasting. Hey folks, just letting you know that tickets for the early show of the live All My Friends Own Bar Band's 5th anniversary, just over half sold for this show, which is super, super exciting. Still a few tickets left if you would like to grab them, and a bunch of tickets still left for the late show as well. We will have Alex the Astronaut and Elfresh the Lion joining us for the early show, and Sarah Blasco joining us for the late show. Still a few more guests to get announced next week. So keep your ears and eyes open for that. But in the meantime, head over to moshticks.com.au or thevanguard.com.au or indeed just head to the link in the show notes to grab yourself a ticket or tickets to either or both of the All My Friends Are In Bar Bands live episodes happening at the Vanguard in Newtown on Sunday, October the 25th. The early show starts at 6.30pm and the late show starts at 9pm. Would absolutely love to have you there. It's going to be really, really special. I'm working really hard on making these uh, shows really special. And uh, yeah, it would mean a lot to see you there. So thank you again so much for the support. And we will see you on the 25th at The Vanguard. This episode of All My Friends Are In Bar Bands was recorded on the land of the Gadigal Wongo people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Enjoy the episode. David James Young here back for another week of All My Friends Own Bar Bands. Hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in and checking this out. Hope things are going well for you. We have a double up today. We have double trouble on the podcast. We have two veterans of the Australian music industry joining us for a chat. One of them is Phil Stack, uh, a acclaimed jazz bassist and occasional pop superstar. Uh, He is best known for his role as a founding member of the band Thirsty Merc, who have been basically on the road non-stop for 15 plus years now. Uh, And he is also a very, very accomplished jazz bassist who has played with everyone from James Morrison to Michael Buble and back Last month, he released his debut solo album. It is called Colourful Noisy, and he is going to be launching that at Mary's Underground in Circular Key next week, the 15th of October, doing two shows, an early and a late show. And support at both of those shows is going to come from our other guest this week, Ms. Abby Dobson. Abby is a singer, songwriter, and occasional chanteuse. She is best known for being part of the group Leonardo's Bride, who hit it very, very big in the 90s with a massive song called Even When I'm Sleeping, which you will know the second that you hear it. Uh, Yeah, these two... Uh, come from different backgrounds and kind of came up at different points in the industry, but 
yeah, they are incredible storytellers and lovely, lovely, lovely people. Uh, this was my first chance to get to speak to either of them. This was set up uh, thanks to the great Nicole Stringer over at Chug. Huge thank you to Nicole for setting this one up. I'm really, really happy with how this turned out. Like, uh, this got quite in-depth. We spoke at length about growing up in different parts of New South Wales, uh, touring around. Uh, We even get a extensive and beautiful story behind Abby's big hit, so definitely stick around for that. Huge thank you to Phil and to Abby for taking the time to speak to me, and thanks to Nicole and Chug for helping to set this one up. There are still tickets available for Phil and Abby's show next week. You can grab tickets in the link in the show notes. And hey, while you're there, why not grab some tickets to All My Friends Are In Bar Bands live at the Vanguard on October 25th, would absolutely love to see you at either or both of those. Won't keep you too much longer. Just a reminder that this podcast is made possible with the help and support of people just like yourself. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. If you have any friends that might be interested in what we're doing, I know you've got a few Thirsty Merc fans in your life, and you've probably got maybe one or two Leonardo's Bride fans in your life. You never know. Uh, But yeah, if you like what you are hearing, please let people know about it. And if you would like to go the extra step and help to keep the lights on over here at DJYHQ, you can do so by supporting me over on Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you will gain access to playlists, bonus content and various bits and bobs from my life as a freelance music journalist, a podcaster and a musician. If any of that sounds at all of interest, then please head over to patreon.com slash David James Young for more information. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash David James Young. In the meantime, if you would like to get in touch, barbandspod at gmail.com, B-A-R-B-A-N-D-S-P-O-D. You can also follow the Not For Print Podcast Network at Not For Print Pods on Instagram. You can also follow me on Instagram at DJY Writes, and you can visit all my friends com. I think that's just about gonna do it. Let's cross now to my chat with the legendary Phil Stack and Abby Dobson. Hi everyone, I'm David James Young and all my friends are in Bar Bands. Today I would like to introduce you to my friends Phil Stack. G'day. And Abby Dobson. Hello. It is Friday afternoon, we are in Surrey Hills in Sydney and Phil here is on the uh, Whirlwind Press Tour for, uh, for a new record. Yeah, my first. The very first after, God you've been doing this what, 20 years? Well, 30 years. 30 years. And technically it's... Technically, it's my, my first full-length record of my songs, but I did put a jazz album out in 1997. Oh, right. And an EP out in 2015, but uh, 
So essentially, it's my second full length album. Um, so I wanted to wait until I was absolutely ready. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, was that was that first record under your under your name? Yeah, I I won the James Morrison Scholarship as a young musician, so it was a jazz record. Oh one, right! The only reason I did my own records was part of the prize was money to record an album. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got off my butt and done it. And I was fully out of my element, out of my depth, and I got some of my childhood jazz heroes to uh, Australian jazz heroes to play on it. And right. um, and so that's the only reason I did it. And then I sort of got busy doing everyone else's thing for the next. 20 years and yeah, other stuff do. that I love and but yeah that's so real so like you, you feel like you're kind of correcting whatever you would have been a kid back then like yeah I was 19 19 mm. Christ so do you feel like getting to do this quote unquote properly this time around is just like second chance at like a, a, a second debut album if you will yeah well it's it, it's more like I, I've sort of gone through doing a whole bunch of of jazz and of course you never stop learning this stuff but I've, yeah 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 i'm only now able to sort of incorporate all that stuff that i have played and um in, into my own music as opposed to making a jazz record and, and then a pop record it's kind of this is kind of everything that's me yeah yeah i yeah. guess and it's i didn't really feel just didn't really feel ready and confident mm. even though i'd written many albums of material between here and then yeah. it's gone <laughs> by the way so and you sort of think oh i could use any of that stuff but you can't use you can't use anything from 2006, 7, 8, 9. Yeah, you, you yeah, can only yeah. do what's the recent couple of years, really. Yeah, totally. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel right to yourself. So yeah. that stuff just gets lost in the ether. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, so Phil will be launching that and uh, Abby will be playing with him. Uh, where are you at the moment in terms of uh, recording and making music? Have you got anything in the works at the moment? Well, I I put out my last solo record at the end of 2018. Yeah. I called It's Okay, Sweetheart. But I've had this side project going for the last now 12 years called Baby et Lulu, okay. which is a French band that I'm in, which is... Oh, la la. Oh, la la. You speak French. Eh? Uh, je suis un poisson. That's all I know. You are a fish. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the only phrase that we learned in Hello, high school. Hello, little fish. Yeah. <laughs> it will never come in handy, but that's Not the one phrase I remember from high school French. It's memorable. Yeah. It's a memorable <laughs> phrase. Um, so, yeah, so I set... Um, I started up this band with my friend Lara Goodridge. We've discovered mm. that we both love the French language and could speak French. Oh. And so we set up this very silly side project that actually has been quite the main frame. We've put out two albums and we were supposed to put out a new album. So we've got an album in the can. Yeah. We had a big tour planned for this year um, and, of course, that got cancelled so mm. um so that's kind of it's the next cab off the rank as soon as we can you know go, get get outdoors exciting um but yeah i just kind of meander from one thing to another i've never unfortunately had a grand plan <laughs> you don't really need one i don't think well i like hearing when other people have one it sounds yeah. really exciting and really organized and efficient to actually have a plan and then plot your life and I, I I get jealous of people who do that, but I don't have that particular. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want it until you see someone else have it. It's yeah. like, God damn it! Yeah. <laughs> That's what a planned life looks oh, like. Oh, oh, must be nice. Yeah, <laughs> and just the excitement of going, I want to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then after that, I'm going to do that, and then there's this tiny break here, and then I'm going to do that. I, yeah, I just kind of like whatever I'm in, I'm fully in, and then I can't see the next thing till I'm out of that so yeah, yeah, yeah. i just don't have the kind of broader vision but yeah. you know i've i've managed to do okay yeah 
Yeah, I think so. But, but that's a, not a bad way to be. You're letting, you're letting it unfold as it naturally would, being informed by the previous thing. I you know, suppose it, so. I think probably, I don't know, for, for me, I reckon like being a co-creator of it, of your destiny is, is, a, is a good thing. But, and I'm not saying I do that well, but people who are just planned, it's going to be, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. They're kind of cutting themselves off to what the incremental sort of Right, and what other little trajectories do, yeah. that you hadn't planned yeah. would join that. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Much to consider. <laughs> so I begin these by tracing back the initial interest in music, specifically where it changed over from being something that you were maybe watching on TV, listening to on the radio, etc., to kind of transitioning to this is what I want to do. I want to sing, I want to play instruments, I want to be in a band, I want to write songs, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Phil, we'll start with you. Can you tell me about how music kind of factored into your childhood and your upbringing and if there was kind of a switch on moment where it's just like, that's what I'm going to do? I was listening to, I guess the Beatles were my first love. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as um, creating music, yeah, I, I was trying to teach myself piano based on sort of their songs, I guess, learning that stuff by ear. Um, be- before that, my parents would listen to like Two One a Brass on an old eight track reel to reel tape oh, recorder. Yeah, real cool stuff like that. Herb mm. Alpert and Two You On a Brass. And oh, mum was into John Denver and um, all some more good Christian things that she was into. And mm-hmm. so I'd, 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 you know, I'd, get, I'd listen to that. But she also had Dolly Parton, which was weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> Dolly Parton is just over <laughs> your shoulder. She's, she's, she's quite distracting. <laughs> right, be- right behind us. Dolly Parton. Better day of Dolly Parton tour. on the wall. I was doing that, but also. Grunge was a huge thing when I was coming through. I'm like sure, yeah. Soundgarden had put out the first albums, and and so you get get together a band, and someone plays bass, and someone plays guitar, and I sort of had a dream about playing bass, and mm. I, which was kind of strange, and I, I always thought I was sort of too clumsy fingered to play guitar properly too. So so I got into the bass, and we joined, we started a band, and it was a garage band in my cubby house at home, and yeah, yeah, and and um, yeah, the, the music of the time was. Was, was grunge music but we were also into real into Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles sure, so it was kind yeah, of all yeah. informed by that kind of stuff and yeah. as far as a moment where I thought oh, I'm going to do it for a living I don't think that really came to a little bit later mm. for me yeah so how old were you would you have been at that point I probably wasn't six till, till I was about 16 or so mm. we started our first band in um, 1989 or 1988 I was 11 and we um, the first my first band was clarinet and drums Ooh, yeah interesting yeah clarinet and drums and uh i'm playing i'm playing the clarinet and um i remember uh, my dad coming in and going don't you uh, just clarinet like what are you like what are you guys doing kind of thing mm. clarinet and drums like don't you find it a bit empty and, and i was going nah 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 it's like, good what <laughs> no <Awesome>. idea <laughs> fuck that's brilliant. and then eventually we, we you know he kept playing the drums and i started playing guitar and bass and we sort of formed yeah. the band but it wasn't until later high school that i thought okay this is what i'm gonna do and that's when i um Stopped doing everything else at school. Stopped. Yeah. I turned up because my dad was a te- teacher there, but yeah. um, I stopped doing any work and went, okay, I'm going to do music now. That's, yeah, yeah. that's all I care about, yeah. What about you, Abby? Yeah, it took me a while to work out that – a long while, like I was much older than you. I, I was into music, my, but my whole family were into music, so that was just seemed mm. like a – you know, like the normal thing to do, that everybody played guitar. I'm the youngest of five and everybody in my family played guitar. Yeah, right. Um, And, again, there were kind of diverse, maybe not as wide-ranging as eclectic bunch that Phil had, but uh, my older brothers were right into Bob Dylan and early Genesis and David Bowie and Lou Reed. Cool stuff. The Beatles was also a kind of unanimous vote. 
um, in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I played, learned to play guitar maybe at around, I don't know, it was before high school. So, yeah, probably when I was, probably when I was 11, I suppose, or 10. What, how old are you when you start year seven? Uh, 12. 12. So, yeah, I was probably around 10 or something that I started to go, teach me another chord, you know, and once I had three chords, I was off. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I learnt to play with Bob Dylan and the Beatles. There were good three-chord songs with the Beatles and yeah, yeah, Neil yeah. Young. And so, yeah, I had a kind of tuneful voice and I would play. They'd wheel me out for school things, you know, concerts, etc. Mm. But I didn't really have – no one was saying that you should do this for a living. Everyone said, oh, you've got a nice voice. But no one said you should do it for a living and I didn't know anyone who did it for a living and my mother certainly didn't want me to do it for a living. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just this kind of nice hobby that I spent all my time – doing but I definitely you know and I would listen to the radio on Casey Kasem's American Top 40 when I was a kid with a tape player and I would tape myself singing along to the radio (laughs) so I was into it but there was no kind of idea of what it could be or that that was going to be a something I just it just like took my spirit it wasn't until I left school I still didn't know what I was going to do I worked in advertising and I bumped. I met a guy in an advertising agency, Dean Manning, and we started going out. And we—he was a closet songwriter, and I was um, a closet singer. And we went travelling for a year and a half around Europe and America, and took a guitar with us, just with the idea that we might have to sing for our supper, and which we ended up having to do all the time, <laughs> right, quite quickly. Um, so we played all these shows as a duo, um, doing kind of half covers and half originals around bars, and that was when it was like, oh, this is this is what I do now. But yeah, even yeah. still, it took quite a while to kind of really bring my full spirit into what I was doing. At that mm. stage, I was just travelling and I was just living. And but yeah, after a couple of years of doing that, I was like, what if I really commit to this with yeah. all I've got? And that's when the frequency of what I was doing changed. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chatswood on the North Shore of Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, would have had a pretty instant access. You just go over the bridge and you ride into where all the shows are happening and stuff like that. Well, except for that I started playing actually uh, like overseas yeah, oh, right. yeah, so yeah, and then yeah. came back to Sydney and then we didn't know anyone in a band and we were trying to work out how to put a band together we would get drum media like every midnight it would be dropped on the st- Oxford yeah, Street yeah, in yeah, Paddington yeah. where we were living and we would go and rip open that you know really difficult tape oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and to get the drum media and go home and pour over it and you know try and work out where to play and who to who, how we could get gigs and how we could get people at gigs and we mm. were really quite kind of inventive and excited and yeah it was yeah heady heady days <laughs> were you going to like before you started like properly playing and stuff were you going to a bunch of shows like was there much of a local scene where you were not really actually because actually because there, it was the time of grunge like we were quite an anomaly and and we had this hit even when I'm sleeping that, that that broke through. But the music we were playing, I mean, we had double bass originally. Alex Hewitson and Antero Cheskin mm-hmm. were our rhythm section. Great. We got this jazz rhythm section to start, and w- w- there wasn't the, like it was grunge. It was that Pearl Jam and and so you're going against the grain a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And so it took a long while, even you know, t- to get played on radio. It was quite a big deal. A radio programmers like we were played in front of them for. 
a year or something. Did that help that you reckon that you were going against the grain a bit of what was? Ah, uh, you ended up being sort of indie darlings anyway, kind of thing. Well, even if it wasn't grunge, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, people going, look, we love the music, but like, listen to what we're playing on the radio. It's right. not yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, fortunately, we had a great record company, Mushroom Records, and they just pushed us as much as we could. And they just everyone liked the music, but they just didn't feel like it had a place. And eventually, we just made a place. Like yeah. We just kept. We worked really hard. Yeah, like yeah, we kept yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was kind of how it how it happened. So no, I wasn't really. We weren't really kind of going out out to gigs. I mean, I remember seeing Frente and Angie Hart's now a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was funny. I saw her on TV and I and on doing on video hits doing Ordinary Angels, and I was mm. like, oh, there's someone who's kind of like us. Like maybe there's a room for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, I feel like I could be friends with her, which I didn't <laughs> feel like all the time. Yeah, sure. Years later, I told her that, and she was like, oh, that's great. That's I'd love so to lovely. be your friend. Oh, bless. <laughs> Phil, where are you? Where, where whereabouts do you grow up? I'm from the country, a little place called Dubbo. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so very, very little to do out that way. Yeah. You got the zoo. That's it. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, grunge, grunge was all the rage. I had my Doc Martens. And, yeah. yeah. Like, I don't, I don't even think, had, had, had Triple J gone national at that point? Yeah, well, it actually had. I mean, I remember we were we actually were one of the first Triple J unearthed bands back in. the Oh the, no, shit! Yeah, we, we, wow. We we uh, were on the first CD with Grinspoon. Oh. Um, we were the Western Region band. We was called we were called. Uh, was it called Twenty Two? Oh, no, it was called Drown then. Right, yeah, 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 which, yeah. Which you wouldn't have heard of, but we we did. It's um, a good name. It's a good name. It's very grunge, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, Utopia before that okay. That's even more grunge mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, yeah so I think yeah Triple J had gone national And as I said it was the Early days of the unearth thing So we we were coming down and playing those Drum media type shows Like the Iron Duke and doing things like that And um, supporting bands Like um, Mother Hubbard Which is like Oh yeah Alex, Alex, Alex Lloyd's Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Spy, maybe spider bait. Um, yeah, yeah. Nice. On a, like a, a thing and uh, custard. We did a triple of J course, thing with yeah, custard. Sick. Yeah, remember that? So yeah, that was that was. Yeah, we would we were coming down there with our dad in a. We were still at school with a tr- car and a trailer coming and playing those little um, sort of triple J shows for a couple of years. That's unreal. Before, so before I moved to Sydney in yeah, the yeah. mid nineties. Yeah. <laughs> I like. I feel like most people that I know are, that are from those areas. When you're connecting with other people, it's just like, oh, you like that music? I also like that kind of music. There is no one else here. There's like, yeah. there's like 10 other people and they don't give a shit about this kind of music. So we got to be friends now, you know? <laughs> yeah, although it was very cool at the time for, for you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the kids. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Tell me about the first time you performed. Like, how old were you? Like, in front of people. Uh, well, I did sort of musicals before that, like you know. I was, oh, amazing! I was, I was Oliver when I was nine. That's with a sick. Soprano voice. <laughs> oh, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so I did things like that. But um, as far as I remember doing my first um, solo performance, when I it wasn't until I was, you know, uh, well, playing with the band, I uh, we did you know from age thirteen, we had this big thing every year called the pool concert you know which was a big deal you get to the double olympic pool and you play 15 minutes each and you practice all year yeah and um so i did i did stuff all through high school but when i got into sort of the first solo performance wasn't until i was 17 i'd just taken up the double bass and i remember yep. 
remember doing that at school and um yeah were you nervous kind of going oh, out yeah. and doing that first time yeah 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 it's a lot to take in isn't especially yeah. at that age yeah exactly do you still get nervous I get nervous for my own thing more. I don't get nervous playing even large crowds with other people when it's not my material. It doesn't matter how big it is. It, it, I never get nervous for that, rarely, and, or only a small amount. Yeah. But, but playing for two people with my material, it's more nerve-wracking. Yeah. For 20 people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, strange. it's a strange beast, isn't it? You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, gen- but generally not. Not because it's I'm confident or something, but it... it it's just when there's when you've got the sort of um, blanket of other people and non mm. non ownership of the material to a certain extent as well. I, I don't yeah, know. yeah, no, totally. Abby, how old were you when you performed for the first time? Well, again, I was in like in certain kind of musical things um, yeah. at school. Oh, do you, you did musicals as well? Well, actually, to tell you, I did when I was in primary school. That oh, was the first nice. time that I. That was the first time that I fully performed on stage yeah, and, that, yeah, yeah. and that definitely was a thing mm. and I remember my friend's father leaning across to my mother going hello you're in for a ride with this one <laughs> um, and I can still remember the songs it was Little Papoose it was about an Indian tribal kind of thing when right. I was had and I was dressed as a papoose so yeah so that there was that and then at school I played at I went to a Catholic school and they would wheel me out for certain masses and things like that to play yeah. guitar. But I didn't really uh, have the confidence. Like, I've, I've never really been a look-at-me kind of um, personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. whilst I loved music, I didn't really – I wasn't like, I want to be in that competition. I'm going to yeah. put my hand up for that. I didn't really thrust myself forward to things. Fortunately, mm. over the years, I've had people – kind of bolster me to do certain things in that way and my confidence has probably grown a little more but yeah it wasn't till so yeah I did I had exposure to 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 playing in front of people and then I start had singing lessons just on the sly when I left school Mm. and my singing teacher was in a band at Crow's Nest there was a music store at Crow's Nest and all the people who worked in the store were musicians and they put a band together and I was her student and so I was they, – they did a gig and asked me if I wanted to be the backup vocalist <laughs> at their gig. So that was the first gig yeah. and that was at the Harborside Brasserie and I was the backup singer and my friends came and they got drunk and made out like in front of me while, we, while the band were playing. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Oh, man. So was Leonardo's your first like – proper band yeah yeah right so like were you like playing solo before that at all or was it no 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 I wasn't I was just I was working in film production and advertising and then as I said I met Dean and I was always writing poetry and things like that from when I was about 15 but I wasn't writing songs but Dean was writing songs yeah it wasn't until we kind of got together and then he had a piano at his house and we Mm. would you know play piano every night and we did a brackets and jam thing yeah, yeah, um, yeah. at Crossroads Theatre which was like gosh a million years ago I was maybe 19 I think right. when we did our first brackets and jam performance as a duo and then soon after we travelled overseas and played in, basked in the strip, you know, subways and yeah, yeah, played, anywhere, yeah. played in bars and 
Yeah, walked around get, trying to get gigs with our guitar because that's what you did in those days. You'd turn up to a bar and go, can we play here? Right. And they'd go, well, give us a demonstration. Or you can play tomorrow night, for, do a song, and if we like you, we'll give you dinner and 50 bucks or something. So Good we deal. did a lot of that. <laughs> We're like, okay. So, yeah, that, oh, and wow. that's how that started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Phil, um, what? What other bands were you kind of kicking around in before Thirsty started? So you mentioned Drown. Like, what happened after that kind of wrapped up? Well, that actually became Thirsty Merc. Oh, true. So So Ray was in that band as well. No, what what it was was Ray and I had met through playing jazz. Mm. Drown had kept going and it was called 22 by the stadium. We were all living together in a house in Hunters Hill and but not doing a lot of gigs. And then he was always coming around because we were hanging out and playing jazz and listening to Stevie Wonder records and all sorts yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And then um, he'd, he'd come back from overseas. He'd sort of uh, got signed over there with Columbia, had a quite a big deal there, but it didn't, didn't end up working out. Kind of right. came back kind of a little bit, you know, ready to do something with a band. And he was like, oh, do you guys want to you, – you've got an established unit, as in the three of you. Why don't can – can we play some of my songs – with your band kind of thing. And then then we put it together and it became it became Thirsty Merc from that. Originally right. we were playing half the grungy kind of material that we were kind of doing and then and and I was singing in that and then Ray's material, you know, that we that we'd done there together. Yeah, and in 2002 it, that was 2002 actually when when it became that. So Right. Um so the original guys on the first record were the three guys uh, us three from Dubbo and yeah, and, yeah. Ray, and Ray, yeah. Yeah, right. So that's kind of how that so it actually be morphed into Thirsty Merc, yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, then, you know. Then, then we realised where the, you know, the. At first, it was just a bit of a goof off. You know, I yeah. played some of those songs, and and then obviously Ray being such a great songwriter, and it just became this sound and this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we like you were doing still playing jazz stuff on the side as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. We yeah. Still, we still did it. You know, yeah, all sorts of jazz on the side. And, yeah. Is that is that kind of a fun thing to kind of have that kind of double agent life as a musician yeah. to kind of be able to flex one particular muscle in in one arena and then be able to go and play something completely different? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, nowadays it's more integrated for me. Like like I said, sort of putting putting the rock in the jazz and the jazz in the rock and just making it yourself. You yeah. Know, not not worrying about putting the hats on kind of thing. Yeah. To, to um, and but that's how Ray and I have initially bonded i guess was mm. the fact that oh he loves jazz and i play jazz but then we've got this love of the beatles love of song songs love of james taylor love love of anything yeah. song song the yeah, carpenters yeah, yeah. you know sure and so we just talk about that stuff obsessively and yeah. sit at service stations at two in the morning in in, in our car and you know sort of uh, text girls and listen to music kind of thing you know yeah yeah and then, and uh, <laughs> that times. and sort of yeah it was it was good it was a good good carefree yeah, then it, then it became um, Thirsty Merc as such, and we we did a couple records, and we still tour half the year. We we still tour for six months of the year with that band. Well, normally, yeah, yeah we'd normally yeah. be doing gigs now. Um, and then we go and the other half of the year go and do other stuff, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's, balance. Yeah, we, we love it. It's, yeah, it's actually never been more balanced in a way. And it's it's a three, it's a three of us now, and we employ a drummer, and um, we, we work with a few different drummers, and. Um, yeah, sorry I'm rambling. <laughs> Abby, can you tell me about the first time Leonardo's went out on tour? So you mentioned, you know, going through and playing all through Europe and stuff like that, but like uh, when you came back and, you know, you're getting your music out there, you're putting an album out there and stuff like that, can you tell me about kind of touring around that record and, and 
putting out music properly for the first time? Well, initially, before we had any kind of interest, like we didn't have a manager or a record deal or anything like that, we just, you know, we just drove all over the country, as you do, and shared beds and a hotel, you know, five of us in a hotel room, carrying our own PA. And I think my brother was actually the sound guy on our very first tour, which was... Like, pretty horrible, really. Like, <laughs> it's really pretty horrible. Like, no one knows you and you're oh, playing yeah, yeah, to yeah. people who, you know, find you a pest that you're actually making noise in their their room, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then you get support, you know, you get support gigs. I remember the first support we got was um, Dave Mason from The Reels. Oh, yeah. oh true, yeah. And, He's um, in Dubbo. Is he? Oh, true. Ah. From Dubbo, yeah. Wow. And I was so excited. Of course, you know, I'd just been pouring over Rolling Stone and Drum Media up mm. until that point. And you see all these people, photos of people backstage with their arm around each other, like that they've, like they're on the same bill. And yeah. you just think, oh, everyone's friends. They're, fr- yeah. you know, like. And so we did our first support thing. And, and Dave, I didn't realize Dave Mason was kind of a, a little kind of uh, <laughs> kooky. Uh, then, but he didn't really want to know us at all. Didn't want to meet us. Didn't want to say hello. And I was just like, "What?" I thought, "But we're supporting you. Like, aren't oh. we going to be friends now?" <laughs> Betrayal. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. And in those days, of course, the support band had to load the PA. Oh man! Wow. Yeah, no, that was it was hardcore. Bring the alcohol too, right? When, when you, it, it was if you went back far enough, that's what it used to be. Right, yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. So it was pretty. I was pretty full on. You'd have to get there at like two o'clock in the afternoon, and then I mean, lug. I wouldn't do it, but I would be there. Yeah, rock pigs in those days. The, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't a nice world back mm. then. You oh, had to God. really prove yourself all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah And I've yeah. got quite a big singing voice, but, you know, if I couldn't hear myself, you'd be using other people's, like, crew, you know, and so they'd be doing you a favour by giving you any kind of monitors at all. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it was a really – you were always kind of right having – and then you'd do the gig, and we were, we were a pretty well-rehearsed band, so – We'd earn their respect by the end of the night, but yeah. it was it was a slog actually. Totally, yeah, <laughs> when you yeah, look yeah. back on it, the, um, those early days before you have any kind of help and any yeah. kind of publicity or any, you know, you're just really trying to, and also to get bombs on seats, which is mm. the same now, yeah, literally. Totally. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. in those days, there was no social media, so you had to, like, we did poster runs with glue pots mm. and. We would take these photographs of every show we did. We would take a photograph and then take it to, like, set up some kind of scene and then get take it to the photograph, like, photographic print place and yeah, get yeah, two yeah. prints for the price of one and then mount it on card and send it off to all of the people that we knew with all their addresses telling them about our show. Like, that was how we were advertising. Because if you didn't get people there, then the band, the venue wouldn't have you back. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was a different world. But still totally. similar that you're just doing it at home with yeah. so digital, digitally now. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was you gotta, you got to be young. Oh, to, yeah, it's a young person. To, yeah, sure. to sleep in a hotel room with five Oh, God, yeah. Five people. <laughs> just everyone on the floor and shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Phil, what do you remember about uh, the first time Thirsty went out on tour? Like, uh, you s- would have been like 04 when the first record came out, or were you touring yeah. a bunch before that? We did uh, a bunch of gigs around Sydney and um, 
and Melbourne. Um, a lot of people thought we were from Melbourne because we were going down there every week at one stage. I, I think um, either Jet or the Vines had just been signed and they were playing um, a residency at the Duke of Windsor in Melbourne, which oh, is a, true. It's like the Annandale of Melbourne, I yeah, guess, yeah, at the yeah. time. So it's the cool place to do gigs. And so we, I remember the, the, the term was that our agent had said, uh, the power of a residency. Don't forget the power of a residency. So we would be going down to Melbourne every week. We'd still have... You know, some of the guys had jobs and I was playing other gigs around the place. But we'd fly ourselves down, losing heaps of money, um, to go down and play this Duke of Windsor every week. Yeah. And then coming back and we'd play some gigs around Sydney at the Hope Town, the now defunct Hope Town. Yes, and yes indeed. Things like that. And then and then we got signed Warner we, with Warner and we made, went down to Melbourne and made the record. And so as far as those early days, yeah, I, I just I got into a lot of debt, I remember, because I couldn't. I was already making a living from music for about six or seven years before that playing jazz and right, but I yeah. couldn't do those gigs because I had to go and do these free lose money gigs you know <laughs> as you know with, with, with this with this band where it was just costing us money and um, but you know we're building up a small following and 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 then even when the album came out it was we put two singles out and it had a little bit of a vibe but it wasn't we did we couldn't sort of fill a big room and then yeah. I remember we were about to the record company were like, okay, we're going to we'll close off the re- the record now. You know, you, um, we've put two singles out, or whatever, and then we put out Sunday Sunday off that record, mm. and um, and then I remember doing a gig in Adelaide, and we played that song, and people were just cheering like crazy when, and it was the first sort of sign that it, it, it something had connected and it happened with the record, and then yeah. then we extended the record and put like a you know bonus track and re put the record out and uh, a bit and um put another single out i think and so it kind of had a second life so i guess that was getting into 2005 yeah so so it sort of it it wasn't like an immediate success that that record yeah and then fortunate enough to have to have a few other sort of smashed hits on a few other yeah yeah on on the next record as well and um just sort of kept it going yeah 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 so, Abby, uh, tell me about, I guess, the we've talked through the start of Leonardo's and kind of coming through that circuit and stuff like that. At what point did things kind of run their course? Like, was there a particular point across the trajectory where it just wasn't sustainable to kind of be working together anymore? Or was it just kind of just like, you know what the industry is like, you know, it's just like they'll chew you up and spit you out at any given opportunity, especially back in the 90s. I suppose so. I mean, we were, look, we'd been, Dean and I had been working together for 10 years. Mm. We'd put out two EPs independently and yeah. two albums and we were still working really hard the main reason we stopped was because i got sick I, yeah. I i actually was sick for actually almost a lot of the time yeah. during the band but i was getting i was getting sicker i had i was eventually diagnosed with chronic fatigue and rheumatoid arthritis right yeah and so i was just struggling and I, and I was such a yes person as well. So, mm. you know, I, we, we, I can't remember ever having a day off or anything like that. Yeah, there was so yeah. much. I mean, we were in a, I now look back on it as a fortunate position that we had this machine behind us who was helping us with opportunity after opportunity. And for a while there, we were this kind of like great white hope that could maybe cross over, you know, internationally. And so there were trips overseas to kind of, have meetings and there were record deals that happened and then fell through because the A&R guy at the last minute lost his job and right, we were their yeah. baby and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, look, really, in the end, I just had to wave the white flag. I was 
I could hardly walk. And I remember going to New Zealand and we arrived. I'd never been there before. And we arrived and from the airport, we were in the Tarago and I was just lying down on the back seat. I couldn't even look out the window. So I was just, I was just struggling. So I just had to know, I I had this unquenchable fatigue. Yeah. (laughs) So I just had to kind of call it. Are you at a point now where you're m- like much better at managing that side of your life? Totally. Yeah. 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 And I don't have that kind of machine behind me now course, that yeah. it, I'm required seven days a week to be on. And my personality is different too. You know, I don't say yes to everything. Yeah. Now. yeah, yeah. I say no a lot more. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's yeah. a different, it's a much, it's a much slower kind of vehicle that I'm in now yeah 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 yeah. well it's good to just have that agency really to be able to dictate that it is it is and so yeah I my life's pretty pretty sweet now and I only work with people that I love and yeah you know like yeah the thing the projects that I do I I love and and I can dictate the pace so yeah, yeah it's nice the two of you obviously have you know quite different backgrounds and you know come up in different scenes and playing different kinds of music and stuff like that but i feel like both of your careers are kind of unified by having you know that one song that everybody knows and every time you play you're kind of obliged to play it whether it's you know sleeping in summertime you know these songs that are just you've probably played them well into thousands and thousands of times you know over the course of those years and like I'm I'm curious about your relationship with those songs in particular now like having gone through the motions of playing them so many times like was it ever a point of kind of resenting those songs it's just like oh fuck this again or is it just like do you have like good relationship with with those songs now yeah well First, I'm actually realising how similar some of our musical upbringing with the '90s thing, and yeah. and also um, yeah, and the music you were listening to as a kid, and those kind yeah. of influences are quite similar, actually. And then some of the you're talking about the overseas thing with A and R. We we had a similar experience right. with it, where yeah, 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 which sounded almost identical, actually. Right. Yeah. Um, but as far as your relationship with the material, that's um, I'm I'm more grateful for it now than I than I ever was. I think I took it for granted a little a little then. I, I never mm. hated playing those songs with Dusty Merck. I still don't I still don't hate it. Uh, I I enjoy. I think if anything, we as a unit have understood the value of our band. You know, the right right sized value. You know, I think we know where it sits. We know what it is. We know what it isn't. We're appreciative of having that unit and, yeah. and appreciative that we can go and do other stuff and, and come back and come back and do that. But as far as playing that material, um, yeah, like I said, I, um, I'm, I'm grateful for it. And, and I, we, we also do all sorts of different weird versions because we, we have like different lineups and we yeah. play different instruments. You know, there's just kind of sometimes – on the road, it's a matter of what you can get. Like we, we, we have to do it cheaply, you know. We drive our own cars to gigs now, nowadays. It's, yeah, we've yeah. never done it more shoestring than we have these days in the last five years. And so, you know, we'll get there and all we've got access to is like one of our guitar cases that we stand up and sort of stick to the ground and stick a drum pedal to it for a kick drum because we can't afford to bring the drummer and there's no space on stage. <laughs> and then I'm playing double bass with the other hand. Ray's playing tambourine and, with one hand and keyboard with the other. Oh, God. And then Matt's playing acoustic guitar. So we kind of do these different versions of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of stompy blues and roots versions of In the Summertime or, what, or yeah, whatever yeah, it may yeah. be. And it keeps it, it keeps it enjoyable anyway. And it, yeah. Crowds sort of love it too because it's spontaneous. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. Abby, what about you? Like, what's your relationship with those songs, you know, so, so many years removed from when they were first 
coming out and first kind of getting out into the world? Oh, well, probably the only really regular song that I play from Leonidas Wright is Even When I'm Sleeping, still. Mm. I don't really play any of our other songs. Um, maybe occasionally I'll pull something out. Yeah. Um, but I feel so lucky. I mean, I did two shows last night, and so I played it twice last night oh God, in yeah. my show. I feel really lucky. Like, I love that song hard. Me yeah. too. Like, it's beautiful, and it's and it's got angels built into it. Like, every single time I play it, you know, some kind of <laughs> magic it, yeah. it happens. And... and uh, and initially that was like a lot of conjuring, like it's such a gr- – Dean Manning wrote the song and yeah. when we were together as a couple, when it was a hit, we were no longer a couple. When we recorded it, oh, God. we were no longer a couple. <laughs> it's a Fleetwood Mac shit. Are you right? <laughs> and so we never told anybody that it had anything to do with us right, at right, the time. Yeah. It's only in recent years that we've, you know yeah. – kind of let people know the story behind it, which wow. is a beautiful story. Yeah, yeah. We were together and we were living together and we had a fight one night and I had to get up the next morning to go to my friend's mother's sock shop where I worked a couple of days yes, a week. And so I went to bed and he stayed up and when I woke up in the morning he was still asleep in bed. And But there was this note on the cereal packet and it, that he'd made and it said, I love you even when you're eating. <laughs> and there was a note on the shower curtain that said, I love you even when you're washing. And there was a note above him on the bed saying, I love you even when I'm sleeping. And then there was a note on the front door saying, I love you even when you're leaving. Wow. And uh, so I left and went to the sock shop. And when I came home, he had written, even when I'm sleeping, and played it to me kind of by way of an apology. So we had this sweet song. It was a quite... It was a kind of different song. The lyrics were the same, but the, it was kind of quite kind of syncopated and slightly different sounding song than it is now. But yeah. we knew it was this really sweet song. I've always loved it. I loved recording it. When we recorded it, I remember taking a desk tape to my then boyfriend's house and saying, look what we made today. Like, yeah. like almost like, look what I found, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel super, super blessed. I know that's a really cheesy hashtaggy word now sure, but, yeah. <laughs> but like because I remember at the time and also we were trying to promote it we've, we've had, we'd played at radio like four times a day acoustically and I remember and at the same time there was a girl remember that artist Kellis uh, anyway this American artist and she had a hit called I hate you so much right oh, now Kellis, yeah yeah, yeah. Kelis, yeah caught out there yeah and, and I remember just thinking god I'm so lucky that our hit is not some you know, throwaway kind of sentiment that doesn't ha- that wouldn't like right, sustain yeah. me over repeated yeah, yeah. playings. And this song really has sustained me over repeating plays. I still love to sing it, and yes, I feel something happen when I yeah. sing it, even though I can still fuck it up. And you know, last yeah. night I just played it. I have was did a gig with my band, but I, I just played that song with just me on guitar. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It still feels really raw, and like I could make a mistake at any time. Yeah, totally. But, but yeah, I feel pretty lucky about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Incredible, right? When you're starting out as a musician, I feel like a lot of us just have, like, have this very I- idealistic view of what like, like the industry is like and what 
being in a band is like you know just like being raised in like rock biopics and stuff like that and documentaries and all that stuff and you know there's all these moments where where the band of the artist has made it quote unquote you know and like as idealistic and kind of contrived as that might seem I feel like every musician in one way shape or form has those kind of moments whether it's getting to play a certain venue or go to a certain country or you know play with a certain artist or at a certain venue or anything like that like for you guys, um, Phil, I'll go with you first. Like, is there anything that you've been able to do over your career where it's just like, if teenage me knew that I got to do this, like, he wouldn't believe me? Probably, but at the time I was too sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, but not, not in the moment enough. But mm. teenage me would think that I'm going to be in the moment when you get to it. But when yeah. you, I don't, didn't fully appreciate it because, you know, I mean, it's like I heard... An interview with I can't remember who it was, but it was something like someone like Billy Joel, you know, was, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Was like that sort of level, and him him talking about never being satisfied with like, um, you know, still looking over his shoulder about what you know Elton John's doing or something, mm. and worrying about his records number eight and such and such as yeah, number yeah, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking, why would you? What you're Billy Joel? Or, yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Why are you talking about? <laughs> you've got all the money in the world and da da da. Why? Why would you care compared? You know, relatively because it all seems so big compared to me or something mm, mm. but I, I kind of understand it I kind of understand it now because you'd ne- you'd, if, if I have that attitude of sort of ungratefulness about it and I can't just be in the moment because I'm always looking in the future then mm. it's never going to be big enough it's never going to be important enough so those things that actually probably happen you know we've got to play some you know uh, Reading and Leeds Festival in England and I'm with my mates and we're, we've got a record deal and we've got, we're making money and it's, everything's awesome and, yeah. and we're young and uh, but I, I don't think I, I appreciate it enough. I appreciate it more now, and my life's much more um, sane <laughs> now, shall I say. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's certainly certainly those moments, but uh, I get better at just, just appreciating the smaller things now anyway, yeah, yeah, just to yeah. be honest. It's, mm. it's more of a hindsight kind of thing. Yeah. Now. Yeah, totally. Mm. Abby, what about you? Like, is there anything kind of across your career where you just kind of look at any particular achievements or anything that you've gotten to do with music that, you know, just kind of feels like validating you know wanting to start out being a musician in the first place you know again look i probably would echo exactly what phil said and you know for a long while and i can still easily get caught up in it with a certain amount of um you know anxiety that comes with putting on a show and fatigue and all Mm. of those hunger you know you're eating bad food there's lots of things that can kind of pull you out of (laughs) actually the enjoyment of of something, you know. I mean, I remember the first time going to the Louvre in Paris yeah. and I'd studied all of this art at school and wondered about it. Once I was actually there, I was like, you know, my feet hurt. I'd really <laughs> like a sandwich. We can't smoke in here. You know, I was like, should we, should we go? Do you know, that, 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 this, the, the, um, the realisation of things, is of those big things, sometimes don't really deliver, often don't really deliver how... You think that they will, and yet the tiny moments are where you just have the presence, and you catch yourself in the full, sharp focus of the present that the joy comes. Do you know? Yeah. I remember doing a show with this band, Monsieur Camembert, years ago, yeah, and yeah. I was just part of a cog. This great band, we were putting on a Leonard Cohen. Show and there were all of these other guest singers and we were all backstage, you know, cramped into the toilets, putting on our mascara in the mirror. And, you know, in that moment I was like, 
look at you, you know, backstage <laughs> with these girls who are, we're all like excited, we're all going to put on a show. Yeah, yeah. And 10 year old Abby tape recording herself to the radio would think this was pretty awesome. Yeah. So it wasn't even a big deal. And there has been, you know, probably big, more photographic big moments, but those little. Little moments. Even last night on on the show that I did with my band. Yeah. And we haven't played together for ages. And we did two shows because of COVID, so we had two sittings. And then the second show, I got to actually, like, not be in fight or flight mode or whatever. But I felt like I was kind of in for an an exceedingly long time during the first show. The second one, I got to just go, oh, my God, listen to what they're playing. Mm. Like, I could just totally – I was relaxed enough to just go, how lucky am I? I'm on stage with these extraordinary, beautiful musicians that I really like and we're all supporting each other. And so it's those kind of little butterfly-catching moments that are – actually the great ones when you just go oh how lucky am i absolutely to be with these players mostly yeah for sure for sure all right so we'll wrap it up here but before we do that i ask this of all of my guests and now it is your turn i want to know about the best and the worst shows that you have (laughs) ever played feel free to start on either or some people love to end on a high note some people like to bring it crashing down with the with the worst show second so yeah whatever comes to mind just go for it the worst show, there could be a million. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, those early days, all of those shows were like, you know, when you're playing to nobody but the, yeah. but the cranky barman yeah. who doesn't want you there. Or, I mean, usually the worst shows for me are when I've got like laryngitis or something or other and right. I still have yeah. to sing and it's just extraordinarily stressful. And you know what? You just try not to remember those ones. They just kind of fade. The bad ones. Do you know? Like mm. you can kind of go back there, but you really don't want to. Yeah. Um, because even just talking about how hard it was in the – like conjuring how hard it was to actually be in a band, stay in a band, it, it now is just like, wow, it's a big deal. It's really like, uh, you know, reminding myself. It's actually really, really quite hard and arduous. You give it so much of your, your life force. Um, but the good shows, um, I remember there was one that stood out for me. We, I was in, it was at the end of Leonardo's Ride, and again, it was actually around the Olympics. Sydney was amazing in the year 2000 at the, around that time. It was yeah. spring. Everything, everybody was beautiful. Like It was this quite a magical time in Sydney, which surprised everybody because we yeah. thought it was going to be disgusting. And we were at the top of our game. Like That band were just, you know, we... I've still never played with anything like it. Play, yeah. That many hours, flight hours with a band, you just like you would be with Thirsty Merc. Like you just put on your instruments and everybody just locks in in this way that just has this gravitas that you can't re- replicate. But we were at that stage and we were playing at the Domain and there were 70,000 people and there was a whole lineup of other bands. And I was just extraordinarily happy. It was a beautiful day. The crowd were just, you know carrying us and we were at the top of our game the production was incredible i had this big kind of feather backpack on that i'd got (laughs) from lay girls on the market and uh i remember coming off stage and i was just as light as air and i met Mm. some great other artists that are still my friends that day and yeah i just remember that as a time to go to just feel like i was 
actually feel that how great that moment was. Yeah. You know, I was actually in the moment going, I'm in the moment and this is great. Yeah, yeah. 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 Brilliant. Phil, what do you got, man? It's probably one of the times when I was playing with James Morrison and we played, we went to Europe and did these concert halls with this classical brass ensemble and yeah. we did half of it as a duo. And right, yeah. It was, some, it was because... We travel around together in this in this car, and we're trying to learn German to show the other guys. And and we'd um we got to like the Motorteum in Austria, which is this amazing hall where you could play acoustically. And whenever I can play acoustically with my double bass, it's it's the most feeling I get from. It's my home instrument, really. And and, and um to and to be able to play um, without this sort of. Uh, hindrance of amplification and everything and so just playing duo with james at a at at those halls especially yeah the motor team in austria i I remember that being a bit of a highlight and and i remember feeling having a feeling of connectedness to the instrument and yeah i guess the history of the place i'm in and and feeling very lucky and yeah yeah Mm. so what about the worst oh man i'm trying to think what about that oh I don't know. Probably just some of those carnage sort of support gigs where you you're jumping up and you just can't hear yourself, and you know, probably with Thirsty Merc and, and yeah. not necessarily early days. I could have it could have been just somewhere where we just cheaped it too much and we just sort of didn't bring a sound guy and the in the the PA's rotten and <laughs> yeah. and you're just there and you're just going on their plane just going we should have brought a guy. I'll yeah. just, I would have rather make no money on this gig. Yeah, than, yeah. Then go through this and just getting off stage and just just kind of hating it, everyone and as well. And, oh, but no, it's um, you know, it's it, it's 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 still pretty good. <laughs> I remember years ago we went actually when we were playing in like silly bars and you know Dean and I would lean between songs go. What are you gonna have when you get home? Toast. I'm gonna have toast and then I'm gonna have cheese and tomato and then just okay, right next song. You just you know, make it end. You know. Yeah, you just need something to look forward to, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Phil, you have a record. Yes, we have a record out. A called- beautiful record. Thanks, Abby. Uh, it's called Colourful Noisy, and we're launching it in uh, Mary's Underground on October 15th. Yes, get in indeed. now and get your tickets. Absolutely. There's the plug part. Perfect. Abby, do you have anything you would like to plug? Uh, yes, I would like to plug Phil's album launch. I'm supporting him <laughs> on October the 15th. St Mary's Underground Get in now Get your tickets (laughs) (laughs) Well done (laughs) Phil, Abby Thank you so much For your time today I really appreciate it Thanks Thanks very much Thank you I'm David James Young And all my friends Are in You've just listened to a not-for-print podcast, independent Australian podcasting.